Hola, and bienvenidos to the podcast La Critica de Cine. I'm your host, Lindsay Flores. Welcome back, or if this is your first time, thanks for joining me as I continue the journey of discovering what is a Hispanic film. Last week's episode discussed how Latino actors contributed to the film and entertainment industry by portraying their Hispanic culture in their works, thus making the industry more diverse. This week, we are exploring how Hispanic directors use their talents to bring the world motion pictures that represent Hispanics and their culture. In the last couple episodes, I've been analyzing the social movement of hashtag OscarsSoWhite, which brings attention to the lack of Hispanic representation in the film industry and in the award show's history. With the 90th Oscars being presented on March 4, 2018, it was time to see if there had been any changes made to address these problems. The year of 2017 seemed to be the year people had the courage and energy to petition against and raise awareness about multiple kinds of social injustices. It began with the America's largest protest in history, the Women's March on January 21st, the day after Donald Trump's presidential inauguration. Since then, we have seen NFL players protest President Trump during the singing of the national anthem, and then women of all different professional backgrounds call out powerful, famous men for sexual assault scandals. These allegations from all industries, including politics, sports, radio, and television, but it started in Hollywood with Harvey Weinstein and the more than 80 women who have accused the movie mogul of inappropriate behavior, such as non-consensual touching, all the way up to allegations of rape. With such a serious and widespread injustice against actresses and women in general, celebrities have began to use their platform in society to raise awareness. This was first seen at the Golden Globes in early January of 2018 with the Time's Up pins which promotes the, the movement that was started by Alonza Nacional de Campesinas, an organization c- comprised of former and current farmworker women, as well as women from farmworker families, who wrote a letter to the women in Hollywood showing them that they would stand with them in solidarity. This letter was published in Time magazine. The first major platform of the Time's Up movement was displayed in the 2018 Golden Globe Awards. Actresses and actors alike were encouraged to wear all black and a Time's Up pin to show their support for the movement, and it was taken a step further when the stars took activists as their dates to the red carpet event. But raising awareness did not stop there. The Academy Awards, also known as the Oscars, stars continued to talk about the lack of diversity in the industry through their commentary during the award announcements and acceptance speeches. Kumon Nanjiani and Lupita Nyong'o, who presented the Oscar for Best Production Design, spoke about how they are immigrants and dreamers in the U.S. and spoke of their support for the other dreamers. Emma Stone also made a quip during her presentation of the Best Director, pointing out that the majority of the nominees were male. It is the director whose indelible touch is reflected on every frame. It is the director who shot by shot, scene by scene, day by day, works with every member of the crew to further the story. And it is the vision of the director that takes an ordinary movie and turns it into a work of art. These four men and Greta Gerwig created their own masterpieces this year. 
Despite the uneven ratio of male and female nominees, each of these directors have carried on the legacy of shaping the world we live in and how we understand it through their work. Here's a list of the top 15 Latino directors who are challenging Hollywood's huge diversity problem, according to wearemetoo.com. Number one, Patricia Regan. Regan is a Mexican-born filmmaker currently kicking ass and taking names in Hollywood. Best known for her film Under the Same Moon and the super fun TV movie Lemonade Mouth, she's directed prominent actors such as Eva Mendes, Patricia Arquette, and America Ferreira. In terms of directors, she is one for sure that you need to have in your radar. Her recent film, The 33, follows the real-life story of the Chilean miners trapped underground for over two months. Number two, Magandela Alvizu. Alvizu's documentary, La Negreta, focuses on the Afro-Latino experience in the U.S., both in terms of how individual Afro-Latinos define themselves, as well as how they're viewed and labeled by fellow Latinos. The preview on Vimo shows that Alvizu's own Dominican parents viewed her embrace of being black, their relationship with the term is a word and complicated, as well as currency of the term negreta itself. You can follow Obizu's journey towards fully funding her documentary via the film's website. Number three, Guillermo Arigada. Arigada is an excellent director and is known for both Spanish language and English language films. You've likely seen Amores Peros and 21 Grams, both of which he produced and wrote. A true renaissance man, Arigada is not only lending his perspective and the vision to directing, screenwriting, he is also a novelist. Number four, Hancaza Bravo. Bravo, who's lived in Panama and New York, is not only a director, writer, producer, and actor, she's also a costume designer, and her eye for style and form is evident across her work. Her first short film, Eat, was nominated for an SXSW Audience Award, and she later took home the Sundance Grand Jury Prize for her film Gregory Goes Boom, which starred Michael Sarah and was inspired by a very fraught first date Bravo witnessed firsthand. Number five, Luis Mandoki. You've either seen or heard of the Mexico City-born Mandoki's films Message in a Bottle and Angel Eyes, starring none other than the Jennifer Lopez. He's an extremely successful director who's crossed over with both Latin hits and American hits. It's always incredibly inspiring when a director can find success across multiple audiences. Number six, Patricia Cardoso. Director of Will Women Have Curves, celebrated a Latina's body just the way it is, and we all fell in love with this film. It was a time when someone was saying, hey, I don't have to be a model or stick thin. You can just be you. Number seven is Aurora Guerrero. Guerrero is a Chicana filmmaker and LGBT director which makes her a voice for pretty much one of the least represented demographics on this list, which is also why she's so important. On a side note, not only did Guerrero give us the coming-of-age love story called Mosquito y Mari, she also assisted and directed Patricia Cardoso's film Real Women Have Curves. Number 8, Andres Muschietti. A master of horror, Muschietti is the Argentinian director responsible for giving us Mama, an English-language feature-length story of his own Spanish-language short film, Mama, which he also wrote. Both versions will make you scream and cry in equal doses. 
Number nine, Carmen Marón. The in-game director joins the list of Latina filmmakers. Marón also gives us Go For It, and any movie about dancing your way to the very top is a-okay by me. I can't stress enough how important it is that these women get some recognition. Props to the ladies fighting back and giving young Latino directors some inspiration. Number 10, Rodrigo Reyes. A relatively fresh face in the filmmaking world, this Mexican director garnered buzz on his documentary Purgatorio, which reimagined the Mexican-U.S. border as a mythical place. He's also an extremely practical artist. The advice he gave to a filmmaker magazine called Don't Quit Your Day Job is the following. I wholeheartedly embrace the truth that is incredibly rare for someone to be dedicated completely to his or her work. Number 11, Cecilia Alendrando. Alendrando's documentary subject hit very close to her home. She dove into the life and death of her uncle Miguel, who succumbed to AIDS in the 80s. The story resolves as revolves as much around what is, isn't said as much as what is. Her family, she learns, was not exactly forthcoming when it came to the details of Miguel's life after leaving Puerto Rico, and that included details about his partner, Robert, who then became a monk. Although Alandro's lens, a story that feels quintessentially Latino, finds new life, life and death. Number 12, Jose Nestor Marquez. If you're a lover of sci-fi thrillers, you should know Jose's name. He's behind Reversion, a film that tackles the nature of our memories and our increased reliance on technology. A Latino director in the world of science fiction is so important and gives major hope to science fiction nerds everywhere. Number 13, Ronaldo Marquez Green. An actor, writer, and producer, in addition to being a director, Green is NYU's grad who made waves at the Sundance Film Festival with his short film, Stop, and earned a much-deserved spot in the Filmmaker Magazine's 2015 list of 25 new faces in indie film. Number 14, Damien Sifron. A hustler in the nth degree, this man made one of two Latino-oriented films that earned high recognition at Cannes. His film, Wild Tales, is a series of vignettes that he wrote and directed. Number 15 is Diego Lerman. While Lerman works primarily in Argentina, his film Refugio has gained notable traction internationally. These directors may not be big in Hollywood yet, but they are using their talents and platforms to help bring diverse stories, characters, and ideas to the art of cinema. The director that does this best, in my opinion, is in the 2018 Oscar winner and one of my personal favorites, Guillermo del Toro. Guillermo del Toro was born in Guadalajara, Mexico on October 9, 1964. As a child, he enjoyed decorating his family home with spooky elements and found his love of directing in high school with short films. Del Toro went on to attend the film school Centro de Investigación y Estudios Cinematográficos and later created his own special effects company, Necropia. Del Toro went on to become one of Mexico's greatest directors, producers, and screenwriters, with over 30 works in film, novels, television, and video games. Del Toro has only directed 13 movies, but each film gets better and better than the ones before it. 
The majority of Del Toro's films are intense, horrific, fantastical tales, which entertain viewers with dramatic special effects, makeup, and storytelling. It is because of Del Toro's artistic talent and vision that his films have become popular with audiences of all ages around the world. Throughout his career, Guillermo Del Toro has had 67 award nominations, of which he has won 33. One of his most popular works is the 2006 feature-length film Pan's Labyrinth, also known as El Libro del Fono. With a 96% approval rating from Rotten Tomatoes, Pan's Labyrinth truly embodies the creativity a director can have in a making of a film. It is a story of a young girl in a post-Civil War era of Spain. She is forced to live with a fascist stepfather and finds comfort and belonging in a magical yet frightening world and befriends a strangely beautiful creature. Pan's Labyrinth quickly became one of the top-grossing foreign releases in the United States. It was Oscar-nominated in 2007 for Best Foreign Language Film and received five other Oscar nods, winning for Best Art, Direction, Cinematography, and Makeup. Here's a clip of Del Toro giving an interview about the struggles and successes that he has ha had experiencing in the creation of this film. Good, yeah. Good, very good. <laughs> um, this movie, okay, I was just trying to describe the movie to these guys. Very hard movie to describe. It's a fairy it, tale for grown-ups. Is the way right. you, that's why I think it, it is a good way to describe it. You know? It is. It is. I mean, it's got such the child, like the innocence of childhood, but then mm -hmm. there's so so many dark parts of this movie. Which my first question to you is. Which guy are you? I mean, both in the sense that I am aware of the brutal side of the world, but I am uh, a guy that loves to dream and imagine and so forth. I mean, I'm, I'm not by any far involved in <laughs> heinous uh, fascist uh, torture and, and activities, but I, I, I am aware that there is a very dark side to the world and that one of the best ways to cope with it is fantasy. Right, and tell me about c coming up with this idea for this movie, like how, kicking this idea around your head. Yeah, well, the idea, it, it's, a, it's sort of a sister movie to another movie I made called Devil's Backbone, which was already uh, set in the Civil War in Spain, and it dealt with brutality and innocence. And I think this movie deals with the same two issues, mm -hmm. is what happens to children in war. You know, in this case, it's, uh, it's after the war, but there is repression in mm -hmm. the rebels in the mountains and so forth. So thinking about it, I thought it would be a movie where you could create a fantasy world that was as, as real and sometimes as scary or as uh, dangerous as the real world. And you, you leave Hollywood to go make this you know, elsewhere. Mm -hmm. Can you make a movie like this in Hollywood these days? No, you can. Not these days. Not Why not? A, not a few days ago, never. Well, you know, imagine uh, opening the movie with the images that you opened them. Mm -hmm. And ending the movie you, the way you end it, you know, mm -hmm. which is it's a very strong, very brutal movie. By no, by you know, I, I actually showed the movie to early on to a Hollywood uh, producer director, very famous, and he looked at it and he said, "Oh, it's great if you could only cut the violence, the children would go and will be a success." I said, mm -hmm. "But yeah, but the whole point is to have the violent." and the fantastic together. And that's going to be some of the hardest parts of marketing the movie. I mean, I saw some of the trailers and it looks almost fantasy-like where you might want to bring a kid, but then you see something like, oh, no, 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 this is not a movie for children at That's all. That's why there is a great letter, and a consonant <laughs> in the alphabet called R. That's right. And the movie is R. But in a way, it's so depressing <laughs> to me because it's such a great movie for yeah. an adult. Yeah. And it's like that, that Hollywood won't make this maybe because it won't be as commercially successful because they can't mm -hmm. get the mm -hmm. really younger people into it. Well, I think that it's, uh, it's uh, I think the movie, if you are 17, 18, 
you know, if you're in your late teens and you watch this movie, you'll get it. And there is ultimately the violence in the movie is very affecting. It's not a violence that by any chance anyone would want to emulate or is not. Uh, there's more violence, gratuitous violence in a video game, you know, or in, in uh, half an hour of uh, cable. Right, yeah. <laughs> you know, I think that it's, it's great to have a movie that addresses uh, childhood, but for adults. Mm -hmm. All right, we got to wrap up, but I got to ask you one thing. We were talking about this before you came in. We had a lot of time, so we were studying the poster here. Mm -hmm. Very reproductive image in the poster. They're very much. Can you describe that to me? I mean, I don't even, know how much even, I can say on TV. Even, even the fallopian tubes. Are That's right, right yeah. Well, but at the same time, it's an echo of the face of the fawn, you know, with the mm -hmm. mouth open. But right. sort of this character is sort of being reborn by entering this, it is. the world the of the movie, labyrinth. The movie is full of... I would say embryonary or um, sort of a, a placenta. It's full of uh, like child, baby images. It's, uh, because I think the girl is reborn at the end of the movie mm -hmm. into her own world. And also because most of the fantasy world I think she would dream of is really going back to the belly of her mother. You know, when you see the movie, mm -hmm. the colors in the magical world are uh, scarlet and golden very internal, right. almost visceral mm -hmm. colors. And the, the rest of the world is these colors. is blues and greens and pale uh, grays and stuff like that. And so the real world is far more cold and un uninviting than the fantasy world. You can tell through the description and explanation of using the shape of a woman's re reproductive system to represent femininity throughout the film that Del Toro is more than just a director, but an artist. The next film I would like to tell you about is Del Toro's 2004 comic book story come to life, Hellboy. In this popular English language film, Del Toro brings to life another fantasy world that is hidden with that we know today. A devil-like creature called Hellboy fights off paranormal crime for the American government in a secret sector of the CIA. Hellboy combines Del Toro's whimsical imagination with wit and humor through three breathtaking characters to bring audiences a charming action adventure. Rotten Tomatoes gives this first Hellboy movie an appro approval rating of 81%. Del Toro went on to make a second movie with a stronger development of the supporting characters, such as the fishman Abe and the love interest Liz. Hellboy 2, Rise of the Golden Army, also had a moral of protecting the Earth, which gave audiences a message to leave with. Here's a short interview of Del Toro speaking with the Vegas critic, Jeffrey Howard, about the film. Yeah. Friend, how are you? Excellent, as they say. Oh, Hellboy 2, phenomenal film. Thank you, man. Uh, the scene in the market... The troll market. Mm -hmm. uh, not since Star Wars and the Cantina. That's, what That's exactly say. what I was thinking. Yeah, I, mean, yeah. I haven't seen such a collection of monsters and, and creatures since that movie, I don't think. No, I think that we, we did rank up a, a few of those creatures. And the, the fact is we have a crowd of over 500 people costumed. And we have a, over a dozen or more uh, creatures in fully animatronic suits. And uh, many, many digital creatures. We have... Dozens and dozens of fairies. We have little guys that uh, that we find very very funny that are called the Bogards. And uh, you know, if you look at in that scene, uh, if you watch it repeatedly, you'll see a lot of little details happening in the corners of the frame. Uh, what I really enjoyed about the film is that Hellboy, uh, you involve Irish folklore yes. and paganism almost inside yes. there. Yes. And I thought that was a, such an unusual mix to 
challenge himself with. Yeah, because, because the idea is that there is a more ancient world that perhaps Hellboy uh, can relate to, a, a world that, that was beyond and before mankind, and a time when mankind lived in harmony with the animals and magical beings and all that, and, and the moment they violated a truce, and Hellboy has to choose between his allegiance to mankind or his allegiance to his non-human origins. And specifically the scene with the forest god, it's, there was definitely an environmental message there and about yeah. working together in unity about mankind treating the earth like dirt, essentially. Yeah, the idea is uh, what, the prince uh, has a point in what he says. You know, he says uh, mankind had uh, forgotten their world, forgotten their gods, and, you know, and in exchange for what? Parking lots and shopping malls. And he has a point, except the methods... Uh, he uses to drive his point across are not very good. <laughs> and finally, the age-old question, what beer does Hellboy like to drink? Tecate, right? Tecate. <laughs> <laughs> I've well, never tasted it. So. I, I, you know, I think uh, it was Tecate light. <laughs> <laughs> and I, it was driving me crazy because uh, Kraus sounded like Stewie, a German version of Stewie. In a way he did, but I think he actually came on his own. You know, it was a mixture of Brian Stewie and, uh, <laughs> and, uh, and Seth himself. You know, I think uh, he nailed it, and I am in debt for, uh, with him forever because I think that was exactly the voice that Johann Krauss needed and that I very much wanted. So I think he, he brought the character to life. And I'm glad you, you put in some sense of humor in this movie because you need a breather. There's so much action that I love the little moments of comedy, like the, the doors hitting, uh, the yes, locker doors yeah, hitting. Yeah. Very funny. Well, thank you. I, I think that the movie, the movie needed to have... A, uh, a mixture of emotional stuff, uh, horror stuff, monsters, and, and, and comedy. And we went uh, very much like a roller coaster between those moments. And I think comedy always eases up into the next moment. And that, or it can be exhilarating, and you're better prepared with a little comedy. Such a thrill. Thank you so much. Excellent. Thank you. Thank you. Hellboy certainly demonstrated to audiences the talent Del Toro has for using real actors to play his monsters. This artistic and creative choice to use makeup rather than CGI, which is also known as computer-generated images, is what makes Del Toro stand out as a director. I believe this is part of the reason why the few films that he has directed have been such a great success. The final film I would like to tell you about is the latest and most highly awarded film of Del Toro's, The Shape of Water. This romantic tale portrays a mute woman falling in love with an amphibian man-creature who is held in captive in a government facility she works as a cleaning lady at. Again, Del Toro uses a real actor in the makeup for the water creature who resembles the creature from the Black Lagoon. This story is a creation of Del Toro's that he has been dreaming of since a, a child. In a variety of interviews, he expresses how his love of monsters and the story of the creature from the Black Lagoon inspired him to create this cinematic masterpiece. Here is a clip of Del Toro and the cast which includes Richards Jenkins, Sally Hawkins, and Octavia Spencer speaking about the film in the interview with V Pro Cinema. Will Trump like the Trump? I don't know. I mean, if he watches it, which is unlikely, you know. But, but did you intend it? Oh, well, it's, a, it's, it's, it's funny enough, it's a very political movie. You know, I, I very deliberately made it a, a movie about politics, but not in a frontal way. It's more oblique, but it is about uh, coming together in a time where people are trying to keep us apart. And 
start this film with Eliza masturbating. That's yeah. not quite a del Toro scene. Why was it important? Well, it was a little by little. I, I, I've been drifting more and more towards adult concern. I mean, Crimson Peak was also a little more adult than, than say, uh, pants in many ways in, in terms of sexuality and so forth. Uh, Devil's Backbone had a little bit of that, but it was important because I was telling sort of a Beauty and the Beast story, and I wanted to make sure you understood that uh, this is not a Disney princess, you know, that uh, that you don't have to work in absolutes, like uh, purity, uh, you know, can exist without innocence, that, it, you know, it's important that she is a, a real woman, a real person. And uh, it was important for me that uh, sexuality was there as an element because the two types of Beauty and the Beast stories you have the Puritan one where they never do anything and then you have the kinky strange one where it's kind of perverse and I didn't want to either, either of them. No, I wanted them to have a love story that does have sexuality in it but is not titillating or perverse it's just natural. It's beautiful you know it's part of their story. She's deaf? Mute sir she can hear you. Clean that lab, you get out. This may very well be the most sensitive asset ever to be housed in this facility. You may think that thing looks human, stands on two legs, right? But we're created in the Lord's image. You don't think that's what the Lord looks like, do you? This creature is intelligent, capable of language, of understanding emotions. looks at me, he doesn't know how I am incomplete. He sees me as I am. On the set, at what point did Doc Jones, who, who plays the creature, stop being Doc Jones and became the creature? Well, I was, I've told the story. So we, the first time I worked with him, we were sitting there, and he was in the bathtub. And I thought to myself, well, we hadn't shot yet. And I said, it kind of looks like a guy in a fish suit sitting in a bathtub. And then they said action, and he changed. He just did something. And I was like, whoa. Well, what did he do? I don't know. I have no idea. He just changed his posture. He changed his... Um, he, it was very subtle. It wasn't much, but it was cool. Why is it important to have a real actor in, in a suit? Because I think that when you have a monster in a movie, you, know, you can have a, a performer. But if you have a leading man, like this creature, you needed an actor that actually acts, that is going to sit against Richard Jenkins or Sally Hawkins or Michael Shannon, and is going to give that person uh, an emotion to react. That is not just acting, uh, performing, that is actually acting, you know? But how can you do that in a suit? Well, that's uh, Doug, Doug is one of the few people that can. Ron Perlman can. It's a gift, I, and I don't think there are great actors that cannot uh, handle makeup or, or suits. It's a very special gift, and very few people have it. The natives in the Amazon worship them like a god. Get him out. What are you talking about? No. We need to take it apart, learn how it works. I don't want an intricate, beautiful thing destroyed. We can do nothing. I'm sorry. Don't do this, Elasa. What is she saying? Don't do this. Oh, God, it's not even human.
it is like a fantasy set in the 60s with the creature as, as the hero, but it's very urgent as well. Mm -hmm. Did you guys know that you were making a political film as well? I think it's a fairy tale that um, mm -hmm. definitely is for grown-ups, and grown-up themes uh, mm -hmm. would have uh, incorporate politics, um, but it also incorporates uh, themes about love, and mm -hmm. uh, I, I so that's what I appreciated about it, uh, that it had so many levels to mm -hmm. it, um, and that's Guillermo, though. Yeah. But the fact that it's yes. a Mexican saying, you got to love your neighbors Absolutely. in these days. Yeah. Well, Guillermo is very political. He's very interested. And we are political animals, whether we like it or not. Mm -hmm. And that's just, we, we exist in the world. And fairy tales sort of touched on on what was going on in the world and beyond in a, in a way that we could understand and appreciate and, and process. And Absolutely. You tell many stories about the supernatural. How does it help you tell stories about the natural world? Well, we, we've been telling stories like that since we were in cavemen, you know. You, 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 in order to interpret the world, you need to invent angels and demons and monsters because when you're talking about you and I hunting a mammoth and we are Neanderthals, that's one thing. But when we try to explain the universe, the sun, the moon, the earth, the rain, the thunder, we need uh, something bigger to explain it. And we invent gods and demons and all that, you know, because these concepts really go beyond us. You, you do it with science and it falls a little short. So you need poetry or fable to, to talk about absolutes, good and evil, uh, the cosmic order and so forth. The Shape of Water was nominated for over 230 times for a variety of film awards throughout 2017 and 2018. Of those, the films received 82 awards. The highest awards were the 13 Oscar nominations in 2018, of which four were awarded, including Best Picture, Best Director, Best Original Score, and Best Production Design. The Shape of Water also won two Golden Globes in the early January for Best Director and Best Original Score. This was Guillermo's first Oscar win. Here's a clip of his acceptance speech. And the Oscar goes to Guillermo del Toro. This is the fourth nomination for Guillermo del Toro and his first Oscar win. Thank you. Uh, I, I, <laughs> I, am an, I am an immigrant, like Alfonso and Alejandro, my compadres, like Gael, like Salma, and like many, many of you. And in the last 25 years, I've been living in a country all of our own. Part of it is here, part of it is in Europe, part of it is everywhere. Because I think that the greatest thing our art does and our industry does is to erase the lines in the sand we should continue doing that when the world tells us to make them deeper. The place I like to live the most is at Fox Searchlight because uh, in, in 2014, they came to listen to a mad pitch with some drawings and the story and a maquette, and they believed that a fairy tale about an amphibian god 
and mute woman done in the style of Douglas Sirk and a musical and a thriller was a sure bet. <laughs> I, I want to thank uh, the people that have come with me all the way, Kimmy, Robert, Gary, Wayne, and George, and my kids. And I want to say, uh, like Jimmy Cagney said once, my mother thanks you, my father thanks you, my brothers and sisters thank you, and I thank you very much. Thank you. It is in this speech that Guillermo del Toro represents how directors make a big impact on the entertainment industry by creating stories and characters that help audiences connect with one another and, and in his words, erase the lines in the sand that separate us. Del Toro uses his artwork as a representation to the world of love and struggle that we face together, while also giving us a magical escape from reality, even if that's only for a few short hours. Directors like Del Toro help in the creation of Hispanic films by breaking down the barriers that are often placed in foreign cinema by using their creativity and artistic talents. That is all that I have for episode 3 of La Critica de Cine. If you enjoyed this episode or would like to hear more about us, please subscribe to the podcast and leave a review so others can enjoy it too. La Critica de Cine is available on all major podcast providers, including iTunes and Google Play. Want to know more about the issues in the movies discussed in this episode? Follow me on Twitter, at La Critica de Cine, to get links to the articles and video clips. Stay tuned for the next episode, which will feature films that focus on the Hispanic-American issues of immigration. Thanks for listening. Ciao.